Well, good morning, dear church. Delighted to see you today and um, welcoming our campuses here online. Those of you that are uh, streaming online, good morning to you as well. Uh, I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker today. And uh, I think it was 20 plus years ago, I attended a conference in Indianapolis and had the opportunity to meet one of the speakers, Dr. Phil Riken. And I, I recall uh, after his session that I said, hey, what are you doing for lunch? He said, nothing. And I said, let's go to lunch. And that began just one of these ministry friendships that I have enjoyed over the years. His wife, Lisa, uh, they've become uh, good friends of Jennifer and I, and we get together as much as we can. And uh, so I'm delighted to have uh, Dr. Riken here with us. So a little background on on, uh, on, on Dr. Riken, I almost called him Phil, but uh, here in this pulpit, we'll call him Dr. Riken. Uh, he is the uh, president of Wheaton College, right down the road here in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, he was a pastor and minister for uh, many years before that. Uh, he is the author of over 30 books. He has his own study Bible. Like, how many people have we had preach here that have their own study Bible? The answer is one. Dr. Phil Riken, because he was here a couple years ago. Uh, but we are delighted to have, uh, to have him back with us here at Bethel Church. So let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Riken today. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting out in front of my home and I saw Peter pass by, Peter in his very sophisticated wheelchair, accompanied by his full-time caregiver, Peter who is college age or maybe a little older, Peter who, because of a medical mishap, will never walk, will never speak understandable words, and I was reminded of something that his mother said to me a few years ago. They had been out as a family skiing in Colorado, and there was a program at the ski resort for disabled persons to be accompanied by a real expert ski instructor and taken up in whatever way they could up onto the ski slope so that they could enjoy the open skies. And as this mother looked over at the ski lodge, she saw a row of empty wheelchairs and she burst into tears because she knew that all of those people were freed from their earthly encumbrances. They were up soaring in the high places and that created in her such a longing for her eternal home, for her son for her, for all of us. My purpose this morning as we turn to Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 is to make you a little bit homesick for the home that has always been yours, but you have not yet seen. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. As you turn there, I want to Thanks, Steve DeWitt, for the opportunity to uh, be with you at Bethel Crown Point. 
I also want to thank this congregation because by your prayerful support of your, hopefully for most of you, beloved pastor, you have an opportunity to bless the wider church. I was uh, coming back to Wheaton, uh, driving some, from somewhere out of town, tuned into WMBI, heard Steve DeWitt. It was a kind of sermon uh, where you slow down a little bit to make sure the sermon doesn't end before you get home. Uh, I think of just the blessing that that is all over the country. WMBI is a national reach. Think of the very significant leadership uh, that Pastor DeWitt uh, provides also through the Gospel Coalition. Um, that is a blessing to this congregation in ways that you don't fully appreciate perhaps, but it is definitely a blessing to the wider church. So thank you for what you do uh, from here in Crown Point, Indiana, for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, really all over the world, but particularly through the ministry of your pastor. Now, I'm going to read just a few verses here to give us a sense of Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. You've been saying that you believe in the resurrection of the body and the, and the life to come, eternal life. This is what you believe. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And, and he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And moving down to verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its light lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer... Will there be anything accursed? But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. What I find so amazing about the book of Revelation generally and particularly these last two chapters is the way that seemingly every strand from Scripture is drawn together and brought to perfect conclusion. Did you know that the book of Revelation contains 500 references to, quotations from, allusions to, things that are in the Old Testament? All of the major themes of Scripture are here. Covenant, atonement, temple and kingdom. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are here, of course. Heaven and earth, sin and salvation, creation and consummation, all here in these last two chapters. And as we come to this great ending and tie together these loose threads, I I have just five things I want you to notice. First, I want you to see creation regained. These chapters are filled with echoes from Eden, and that's characteristic of great literature. You have a a sense that there was a beginning to the story, and then at the end of the story, there's a reference to the beginning. You have a sense that this all ties together, that you have come all the way home. You see that very clearly, for example, in The Lord of the Rings, if you know that great uh, trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien or have seen the films. The, The hobbits begin their story at home in the Shire. They have all kinds of adventures. They go all over the place, face all kinds of dangers. But at the end of the story, they come back home. And there is a sense of that in Revelation chapter 21 in chapter 22, you get that feeling right at the beginning of chapter 21, where we, we read about a new heaven and a new earth, and what immediately comes to mind is the very first verse of Scripture where God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, you meet a bride and a groom, and that too reminds you of Eden, where a woman, Eve, was presented to a man, Adam, and the two became husband and wife. Then in verse 3, God walks into the picture. He is there with the bride and the groom in their happy home. And so it was at the very beginning in the early chapters of Genesis when God would come and walk with his people in the cool of the day. We read down a little further. We see references to the sun and the moon. And again, Revelation is calling to mind the beginning of the world when God put two great lights in the sky. You get to the beginning of chapter 22, and you find that through this garden, a river is running, the river of the water of life. And there was a river in Eden as well, flowing out of Eden to water the garden, which divided and became four great rivers. And at the center of what we see in Revelation, of course, is a tree of life. And if there's anything we associate with the Garden of Eden, it is that tree that God planted in the center of the garden for the blessing of humanity. And so as we we walk through Revelation 21 and 22, we should have a sense that this is familiar. This is an eternal home, a domicile for the people of God with a sense of deja vu. 
I feel like I've been here before. Creation regained. And this is in keeping with our very humanity because creation is both our once and future home. And so when we reach the new heavens and the new earth, we won't have a sense of being dislocated, but a sense that we are in the place where we have always belonged. Some of you will be old enough to know the the oldie by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young when they were singing about Woodstock. We got to get ourselves back to the garden, they sing. There is that aching in the human heart to get back to a place where we belong. And it is the purpose of God to bring us there, a place of relationship between man and woman in fellowship with God, a place of light and life, of trees and waters, the place where we have always belonged. This is key in keeping not only with our nat- the nature of ourselves as human beings with physical bodies, but also of the character of God who always finishes what he starts. He is, as these verses say, alpha and omega, beginning and end. And who else could work such a perfect plan, bringing the whole Bible to this fitting conclusion, the whole plan of salvation to such a a magnificent culmination? Who could do that except a God who has been there since before time began and who sees the end from the beginning? When creation is regained, here's the second thing I want you to see, the curse will be reversed. Sadly, we are no longer living in Eden. We are somewhere far east of there. Humanity has fallen into sin and come under judgment. The first man and the first woman ate the forbidden fruit. They were banished from the garden. And what endless woe that has brought on the human race. I had an opportunity with family members this week at a family reunion to visit a cemetery where some of my wife's forebearers were buried. And as we walked past grave after grave after grave, I I thought of Adam and Eve. I thought of the way that death through sin entered the human race. And with that, everything else, guilt, alienation, slavery, warfare, abuse, exile. And what great woe we see in the world today. Every every new day brings news of our desperation, waves upon waves of pandemic, natural disasters, building collapses, drought, the death of living creatures, racial strife in cities across the United States. We look across the world, we see the plight of the persecuted church. These are, these are the burdens that we bear in a fallen world. But when we get to the last pages of Scripture, we see how the story will end, and we see that the, all of the dreadful consequences of sin in a fallen world will be overcome. The curse will be reversed. These chapters are full of images from Scripture of things damaged, all but destroyed, but one day restored. John tells us, for example, in the first verse of chapter 21, that the sea was no more. The Old Testament depicts the sea as a place of chaos 
and danger, everything that is out of, out of control, everything that, that we cannot bring under our grasp. But there is nothing like that in the new heavens and the new earth. Everything there is under the orderly blessing of Almighty God. Notice the way Revelation describes the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. Now there's a curse that has been reversed. If ever there was a city that was unholy, that turned its back on God, that fell under judgment, it was the city of Jerusalem. Think how devastated Jerusalem was in the days of the prophet Jeremiah when women and children were dying in the streets. Jesus could see the ruin in his day. Think of the distress of our Lord. He was reflecting on the spiritual condition of the people in that city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he cried, city that kills the prophets. I, I wanted to gather you in as a hen gathers her brood, but you would not. Yet here in Revelation, that same city is called the holy city. The sins have been forgiven. The iniquities have been pardoned. The curse has been reversed. See something similar in the beautiful image of the bride adorned for her husband, chapter 21, verse 2. Another very familiar image from Scripture going all the way back to our first parents. All through the Old Testament, this image is applied to the relationship that God has with his people. Your maker is your husband, the prophet says. But as you trace the image, it's, it's mainly a story of, of marital failure. The whole story reaches a kind of critical point in Jeremiah chapter 2 and Jeremiah chapter 3 where God actually, look it up, files for divorce. He, he files a, a covenant lawsuit against his people on the grounds of their spiritual adultery and he brings the evidence that they have been unfaithful to him. And that's the story of the people of God in the world again and again. I like the way that I heard Tim Keller once put this. He said, God has been trapped in the longest bad marriage in history. You get to the end of Scripture and that curse is reversed because it is a wedding scene and here is a bride prepared as one adorned for her husband and so remarkable because the groom in this case paid the dowry price with his own blood. And he did it in such a way that everything that was stained and sinful in us, in his bride, in the church, is spotless, clean, perfect. I have done more than a hundred weddings in my time. I have never seen a bride who is anything but beautiful. And Revelation uses this, this picture of pure white holiness to show us sins forgiven, iniquities pardoned, the curse reversed. And then you come to this remarkable promise. In, in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is no more death or mourning or crying. All of that has passed away. You get a sense here of God wiping away our tears. He will wipe away every tear. I imagine on the basis of this verse that you arrive in heaven still with a tear or two on your cheeks from the sufferings of this earthly life. But God is there with the handkerchief of his grace to say, there, there, my child. Let me wipe away this last tear. Think of all the tears we shed, repentance for sin, grief over the loss of people we love, regret for lost opportunities, frustration, anger. Anyone who is sensitive to pain will cry many tears. 
Can you even imagine a place where there are no tears and also no death? Because that last and greatest enemy also has been destroyed. We have all experienced the terrible finality of the death of someone we love who cannot be brought back into this world. But one day that curse will be reversed and death will find its death in the death of Christ and life will come to life in his resurrection from the grave. One story that helps me put this into perspective is the testimony of Dr. Roger Lundeen who taught English literature at Wheaton College for many years until his death five years ago. On more than one occasion, I heard Dr. Lundeen describe the nightmares that afflicted him in the weeks and months following the death of his elder brother. The two of them shared a room together, one bed on one side of the room, the other bed on the other. And in this nightly recurring dream, Roger would look over and he would see his brother lifeless on his bed. And he would have the sense that it was up to him. If he could just reach out and touch his brother, he would come back to life and everything would be restored. But of course, you know how these dreams go. You find yourself paralyzed, unable to reach out and touch and give life. And he would wake up night by night in great distress and feel once again the desolation of the empty bed beside him. I heard him give this testimony. I thought of the story of the widow of Nain. Do you know that story from Luke chapter 7? Our Savior traveling to this town, he came near to the gates and he met a funeral procession. There was a widow. Her only son had died. The whole town had gathered to go with her to carry his body out for burial. But when Jesus met the funeral procession, he reached out, he touched the bed on which the young man was lying, and he came back to life. This is the authority that Jesus Christ has over death. By the power of his resurrection, he will never die again, and by that same power through the Holy Spirit, he will raise every one of his followers to eternal life. He has that touch that brings back to life. And that's the promise in Revelation, no more death and also no more pain. This too will be taken away and sometimes the pain feels even worse than death. Broken relationships, separation, divorce, rejection, bullying, chronic illness, words spoken in anger or hatred, that we will never forget, the whole creation is groaning under the weight of sin and its pain. But one day that curse will be reversed because none of those things, the pain, the crying, the death, none of those things has any place in the eternal kingdom of God. And amazingly, the destruction of death will also be the end of sin. These chapters describe, and I I wonder how you feel about this, they describe the the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. They they list many sins that appear in the worst vice lists in the New Testament. 
And as you read through the list, you usually see some sins that you maybe think you haven't committed or probably wouldn't be that tempted to commit, but there's always a few that you kind of like to commit. None of those lists ever make us feel comfortable at all about our own righteousness before God. And Revelation here is saying that, the, that these sins will have no place there. Nothing unclean is going to come into this city. Nothing, nothing false, nothing detestable, only what is written in the Lamb's book of life. And these are fearful verses for anyone who is not repentant of sin. But these are wonderful words of blessing for those who have said, I, I know I'm a sinner, Lord. I, I want to turn away from that sin. I want you to cleanse me for Jesus' sake. I want the forgiveness that you offer through his cross. Because as we come to God for that forgiveness, Revelation gives us a hopeful promise because it shows a time when God will triumph absolutely over sin. There is no sin in glory. And is any reverse of the curse greater than the end of all our iniquity, that struggle with, with sin that we have all our lives. I was touched one time by the words of one of my true heroes, Johnny Erickson Tata. If you know her story, you know she was crippled in a diving accident, afterwards came to faith in Christ, devoted her life to serving people with disabilities. Do you know what her deepest longing is? She says, I can't wait to be clothed in righteousness without a trace of sin. Yes, it will be wonderful to stand, stretch, reach to the sky, but more wonderful to offer praise that is pure, that won't be crippled by distractions or disabled by insincerity or handicapped by half-heartedness. Now my joy will join with yours. We will bubble over with effervescent adoration, finally able to worship with the Father and the Son, for me, this sinlessness is the best part of heaven. But there is more. Not just sinlessness, but also satisfaction. Can you even imagine that? Because in this life, we are almost always at least somewhat discontent. Greg Easterbrook wrote a book applying this problem to Americans specifically. He called the book The Progress Paradox, and his subtitle was How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And he talks about all the ways we are so affluent. Solomon truly would envy us with the food we have, the health care, the education, the communication, the climate control, the entertainment, the transportation, all of that. And yet, do you know that when sociologists survey Americans and ask them to indicate where they fall on a scale of satisfaction, they are only slightly satisfied. Easterbrook has a lot of explanations for this paradox, but I think the fundamental problem is that a fallen world cannot satisfy anyone. What we really need, what we're, what we're looking for, whether we know it or not, is a relationship with the living God. Like, like David wanted when he said, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. When we come to the end of Revelation, in the last chapter in the story of our salvation, our thirst is satisfied. Jesus said, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. It's not just a description of heaven's water supply. He's talking about spiritual contentment, a satisfaction of soul that only the living God can provide. There's a whole river of that, a whole river of the water of life 
in the kingdom to come. This is another great theme from Scripture. Think of the the man planted like a tree by streams of water. Think of the promises of Jesus. I will give you living water. Out of your heart will flow rivers of water. Those are promises of satisfaction fulfilled when we come home to the kingdom of God. And Revelation gathers all of those promises together and says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Talk about anything that is damaged or dissatisfying or deadly in this fallen world. It will be undone in the life to come. But there's more. God's plan is not merely to take us back somewhere, not simply to unwind or rewind something, but actually to carry things forward to a greater and absolute perfection. So here's another theme from these chapters, salvation consummated. Salvation consummated. God bringing everything to a perfect conclusion way above, far beyond anything we have ever seen before. And what is striking in these chapters is how often the word new comes up. New heaven, new earth. Everything in this whole beautiful city will be brand new. It says in verse 4, the former things have passed away. I will make all things new. Think of some of the beautiful things in life that are brand new. A jar of creamy peanut butter. A brand new baseball glove. Can you smell the leather? A new baby, which is the best of all things. Notice, God does not say here, I will make all new things. He says, I will make all things new. He will take the old things and make them new. And every image here in Revelation 21 and 22, as far as I can tell, is brought to a higher level of perfection than anything before experienced. Here you have this bride. She's beautiful. She's pure. She is a virgin without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy, without blemish. She is not just near perfection. She is perfection itself. Or this deeply satisfying water. It is water of life without payment. It comes freely. Think of all the things that are said here about Jerusalem, the golden. I didn't take the time to read all of them, but it's, you get this impression of this city made of these beautiful gems, the streets paved with gold. It is so beautiful, so perfect. It, this, this, this is a, a city of perfection which still remains a garden. It's a kind of glorious urban paradise for the people of God. And maybe the most remarkable image of consummation concerns our future place of worship. Did you notice this? There is no temple in this Jerusalem. How surprising this must have been for John to realize this. I mean, he knew about Moses and the tabernacle. He knew about Solomon and the temple in Jerusalem. He knew that the people of God had always gone to one particular holy place. That was the sanctuary. That was the place where they would enter into the worship of God. If you wanted to see the glory of God, there was only one place in the entire world where you could see it. The place, the tabernacle and later the temple, the place where God had promised to come with his presence. That physical structure had always been at the heart of of the worship of the people of God, this dwelling place for God. But, But there's no temple in this city because he dwells in the entire place. The whole 
urban community has become sanctuary. Every street, every alley, every building is filled with the light of the presence of God. And this is, this is the whole storyline of Scripture in terms of temple and the presence of God has been building this to this moment when, when, God, when God will come and be with His people forever. The whole beautiful place will be filled with the glorious splendor of the radiant majesty of God. Creation consummated. Salvation consummated. And of all the, the glorious things that are described in these two chapters of Scripture, this is the greatest by far, the glory of God. And can I invite you to consider, therefore, Christ enthroned? Yes, creation regained, curse reversed, salvation consummated, Christ enthroned. Because these chapters are not primarily about a place, they are more so about a person, the person at the center of all the worship, Jesus Christ, whose presence makes heaven to be heaven. And He is everywhere in these two chapters. His presence pervades the city of the New Jerusalem. His glory is suffusing the very atmosphere. In verse, chapter 21, verse 2, He's the husband. There He is, waiting eagerly to see the beauty of His bride. Verse 3, He's speaking from the throne and pronouncing the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Verse 4, He is with the Spirit as the Comforter, wiping away the tears. Verse 5, He is with the Father as the Recreator, making everything new. Verse 6, He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the Eternal, the Everlasting and Almighty God. You read on through. He's the, he's the Shoot of David. He's the Free and Living Water. He's the, he's the Lamb. He's the Lamp. He's the life of this city. So many of the beautiful images of the person of Jesus Christ presented here in these closing chapters, everything bright and beautiful here shines with the radiant glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the most beautiful one to see in the most beautiful place that we can imagine. I remember how remarkable it was for me as I was doing my doctoral studies reading long books for long hours, to come to this passage in the writings of the Scottish theologian Thomas Boston, this is what you will see when you get to glory. The saints will see Jesus Christ, God and man, with their bodily eyes because he will never lay aside his human nature. They will behold that glorious, blessed body which is personally united to the divine nature and exalted above principalities and powers and every name that is named. There we shall see. It's interesting how Boston does this. He's imagining what the saints will see. Now he's entering in. He participates. We shall see with our eyes the very body which was born of Mary at Bethlehem, which was crucified at Jerusalem between two thieves, we will see the blessed head that was crowned with thorns, the face that was spit upon, the hands and feet that were nailed to the cross, all shining with inconceivable glory, the glory of the man Christ will attract the eyes of all the saints. 
And he went on to ask this question, Thomas Boston did, who can conceive the happiness of the saints in the presence chamber of the great king where he sits in the chair of state making his glory eminently to appear in the man Christ. Are you getting a little homesick yet? To have an end to all the pain and suffering and sorrow and enter into the place of unspeakable joy. Here's the final thing I want to say. When the curse is reversed and salvation is consummated after creation is regained, when Christ is enthroned, when all of that happens, glory will have only just begun because the new heavens and the new earth are everything that Revelation promises and infinitely more forever. The sufferings of this life last only a little while, but the triumph of our kingdom will last forever. And that eternity is essential to the blessedness of the new heavens and the new earth because if they did not last forever, they would not captivate us with their blessing. We would always be worried that there is something here that can be lost. But the repeated promise of Revelation is that all of these things will be ours forever. Now, I have to admit that when I was a small child, and sometimes even now, the thought of eternity filled me with a kind of dread. Yes, I was the kind of child that would think about things like this on my bed and then go down and ask my parents questions they couldn't answer. I was aware of the awesomeness of infinity, and it is a fearful and awesome thing. But here, it is presented as essential to the blessedness of the people of God. Because in this life, one of our biggest frustrations is that all good things must come to an end. That is certainly a word for August 1. When the summer is slipping away, you're not going to have time to do all the things that you wanted to do. School, work, whatever it is, is going to come crashing down on top of you sooner than you want. But it's, it's not just the bad things in life that disappoint us. It's the end of all the good things. And sometimes right in the middle of our happiness, we're enjoying some sweet experience. And we just have this little realization, this, it's going to leave us. We're not going to be able to hold on to this moment. It's going to pass away. I wish I could hold on to it, but I can't. The good things come to an end. It's, it's time to retire from a job you love. You can't play a sport anymore that you enjoy. Friends and family move away. I'm going to be consoling in a few short weeks parents whose children are off to college. It's a heavy burden of grief for parents. And sooner or later, you have to say goodbye to everything in life, including the, the people you love most in the world. It is all passing away. But God promises us that when the kingdom comes, when we enter into that glorious place where we are in the presence of that glorious person, the Lord Jesus Christ, it will endure. The scripture says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The new heavens and the new earth will be the last heavens and the last earth, the forever heavens and the forever earth, and they will remain in the brightness of their glory, undimmed forever. That's, that's why John here describes what he saw in terms of gold and jewels, 
precious things from this earth that point to the permanence of heaven. And the, the brightness of that glory will be the radiant splendor of God himself. His glory can never diminish. So when he brings us into the place of his glory, our glory will never be diminished. It truly will be an eternal glory, perfection extended out into eternity, a forever of forevers with joy that will never end. I don't think I've ever seen this more beautifully described, this sense of the timeless joy of eternal life than at the end of the Narnia Chronicles when C.S. Lewis writes in the last battle, and even if you don't know the story, I think you can understand the point of this, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, as they entered glory, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which each chapter is better than the one before. I wonder what it must have been like for John to witness all of this glory, these trustworthy, true words from the end of Revelation, and then to have the responsibility to put them down, to try to communicate to the rest of our mortal race the glories that he had witnessed. Here at the end of Revelation, he quotes the last words of Christ recorded in Scripture. Do you know these words? Surely, I am coming soon. And when John heard that, he wanted to respond. He said, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. His glimpse of home had awakened him, a kind of, in him, a kind of homesickness that would never be satisfied until he reached his eternal home. He wanted that to happen as soon as possible. And this is the prayer that all God's people all over the world throughout all ages have repeated. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.